Well, good morning again. Let's just uh, start with prayer. I feel that. Father, there is none that compare to you. None that is like you. None that rivals you. None as bright or beautiful or as glorious as you. Nothing close. And I pray, God, you'd rescue us from gazing at lesser things. I pray, Father, that we would behold you in greater clarity and greater beauty. And we'd be rescued from these lesser things. That we'd be transformed in the image of your son through gazing, through seeing. And Lord, as we look at a passage like today, that would, we would be stunned and we would be humbled. To see the king of heaven that none can compare to. To see the majesty that we should rise and adore. Stoop to wash. And that we would be humbled. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so hopefully not going to offend anybody. If I do, you have my email address. Um, so I was reading an article from, uh, I think it was the Dean of Admissions at Princeton or uh, maybe Dean of Students at Princeton. And, she's, and she was like, here's what I've seen develop over you know the course of my time here. And... Basically, she went on the list like, here's the biggest challenge I see is people come in and, and like their moms call their professors for them to make appointments. And their moms call the professors when they don't like the grades their kid, kids are getting. And their moms come and, you know, like do all these things that really they should be growing into to do to have these challenging conversations. Right. And so we're tempted to think, well, that's a millennial thing. It's not. There's a guy named John in the Bible who was an apostle of Jesus. And Mama came on and grabbed her two little children by the hands. And they're grown men, by the way. And walks up to Jesus like, Jesus, here's what I want for my kids. I want one to sit at your right hand and one to sit at your left hand when it comes to your kingdom. And, you know, Jesus like, that's not mine to give. But it starts this huge fight within the apostles, this huge fight within disciples, and they're all jockeying like, no, I want to be the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. Who, who, who do you think you are that you're going to go ask for this? You had your mom do it, right? So there's a big fight going on. And Jesus is like, this is how the Gentiles view power. The Gentiles rule each other. The Gentiles exert authority over each other. That's not the way you do it. If you want to be great in my kingdom, here's how you do it. Serve. You want to be first in my kingdom? You want to know how you do it? Be last. And we're going to look at a text today where everything you just sung about Jesus is true. His majesty, his incomparable beauty, the praises of all eternity that belong to him. And you're going to see that one. Bow down and perform the lowest task that any servant is asked to do in the ancient world. And I hope that doesn't just step on your toes. I hope that that crushes the pride out of your heart and redefines greatness for you. And then I hope that it crushes the pride out of your heart and compels something out of you and out of me. So as we turn to John chapter 13, Jesus left public ministry last week and he hid himself until his time of his suffering and trial. 
And he closed out his public ministry with this invitation to the people. Right? You have the light. Believe in the light. Embrace the light. Love the light. Treasure the light. Believe. And you'll be sons of light. Right? You'll, you'll belong to the light. You'll be followers of the light. And this was the epitaph. Despite that he had done so many signs in front of them, they still would not believe. And there is almost universal rejection. Jesus, the perfect son of God, walking among men, talking to men and teaching men, leaves his earthly ministry with almost nothing to show for it. Just as God prophesied would happen. Right. And so that's how he closes his public ministry with this invitation and a warning. Right. If you will, if you won't believe, it won't be me that judges you. I came to say, but it will be the word of the gospel that I have declared that will judge you. And if you will reject, you will be judged. But if you will receive, you will have life and you won't just have life in me. You'll have life in the father. So that's how he closes his his public earthly ministry. And now in this chapter, he opens up his private ministry. And so right in front of him, starting in chapter 12 on, the hour of his suffering and the hour of his death is right in front of him. It's a present reality. And so he switches from public ministry with a warning to private ministry. Why? Because he is going to prepare his disciples. He's going to prepare his apostles for what they're about to witness in like a day or two's time. They are going to watch everyone. They're going to watch the person they have attached their hope to, their eternity to, their life to, their mission to, that they have given themselves to this guy. And they're going to watch him be absolutely brutalized and killed. And so Jesus is going to spend five chapters of the 21 chapters of John preparing them so their faith doesn't fail in that moment. Preparing them so that they will persevere and be sustained and have a foundation that holds through the horror of the cross. And so that's why the private ministry of Jesus to his disciples takes up the biggest section of the book of John. As he's preparing his own for that moment. The world has has made its decision, at least the world that was around him at the time. And his own are his and he's going to keep them. And so that's what we're going to see interplaying on the text. And he's going to do that. In a really shocking way in the text, right? He's going to do that through washing their feet. Like not what you would expect. But it is a display of humility and a display of service that is so powerful that it has to land on your heart. And if it doesn't, then you have to ask why it doesn't. Right? That's what it's intended to do. And so let's look at the text. John 13, 1 through 20. Now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During the supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, and he tied it around his waist And then he poured water into a a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash your feet, you have no share in me. And so Simon Peter said, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, 
The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who it was who was going to betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garment and resumed his place. And he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So what we're seeing here is the exalted Christ humbly serves others. The exalted Christ humbly serves others. Let's look at the first part. Knowing who you are is key to self-emptying service. Knowing who you are is key to self-emptying service. Now, we all have people or situations in our life that make us feel insecure. Some of us more than others, but we all have those people. Sometimes it's because the people around us are smarter than us. Sometimes it's because the people around us are bigger personalities than us. Sometimes it's because the people around us are richer than us. But we all have those moments like where you're just insecure in a situation or you're insecure around certain people. They're funnier. They're brighter. They're 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 better at something. They're higher in your in rank. They're your boss. Something. You know what I've found is kind of the underlying cause of my own insecurities and probably in yours, too. I forget who God says I am. So I'm more worried about what other people think I am. I'm more worried about who other people think I am because I'm not really confident and certain of who God says that I am. Right. And so if for me, it's like I want to be accepted. I want to be approved of. I want to be right. I want to be smart. I want to be funny. I want to be justified. I don't want to fail. I don't want to look like less than other people. Do you have those same concerns? Do you have those same problems that, that you run to? And so. When I run into people that make me feel like less than or people that feel like that that make me feel judged, I can shrink away in insecurity. And so what's the remedy? How do because when I do that, I, I lose the capacity to love those people. I lose the capacity to speak to those people. I lose the, the capacity to genuinely spiritually help those people because I've shrunk back. What's the remedy? Believing confidently who God says that I am believing that he says I am accepted. I don't have to have your acceptance believing that he has declared me righteous. You can't judge me. The judge, the ultimate judge, the final judge has already rendered rendered the verdict, right? So believing that I'm accepted, I don't have to live for acceptance, believing that the judgment and sentence have been passed. So I'm set free. So I don't have to live in fear of judgment. I can be self-disclosing like you cannot know anything worse about me than that. God knows about me. 
And he's already rendered the verdict on it. Do you know who you are? Are you confident of it? I think that's what we're going to see as this text unfolds. You're going to see twice leading up to the foot washing uh, that Jesus does. You're going to see twice it is wrapped around what Jesus knows about himself that empowers him to empty himself and take a different role than is expected. So let's look at it. It's before the feast of the Passover, and this is likely... Um, this is likely like right before the Last Supper, right before the Passover meal. There's a lot of debate. If you care to get into those things, there's plenty of papers out there for you to research on. Was this the night before the Passover? Was it the Passover? Not getting into all that. It most likely is this is before that Last Supper meal that's about to take place with the disciples throughout the rest of the book. And so before the Passover took place. And the Passover in John is a key, important theme. John lists all three, all three Passovers that are part of Jesus' ministry. John lists those out, and we encounter each of those in the book of John. John sets several of his key events that we've hit as we've gone through John. Many of his key events happen with Passover as the backdrop. And so I believe we're meant to interpret the, the details and the symbolism of Passover as the backdrop of what's about to happen. And so we're meant to interpret that there's this Passover where God's judgment passes over his people as they apply the blood of the lamb to the doorpost. Right. As John introduced Jesus to us, John the Baptist, he's like, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We're, we're meant to read the Passover behind the events of the Passover week. We're meant to read that Jesus, our Passover lamb, is going to be slain this week. And he's going to he's going to be a new Passover that takes the real judgment of God off of our lives and offers a real freedom through the forgiveness of our sins. And that's the backdrop for what's happening here. And so we're seeing the shadow of the cross behind everything that's taking place in these chapters. And we're seeing the shadow of the cross taking place behind what's happening here in in chapter 13. And so leading up to the to the washing of the disciples feet. Notice this. It's all what, what leads up to it is all about what Jesus knows. So you see that Jesus knowing that his hour had come to depart from this world and to the father, right? Knowing his suffering, knowing his death, knowing his cross is right before him. And we've talked about it over the last few weeks. We won't go into it a lot. Like the hour of his suffering and death was always future. The hour had not yet come. The hour had not yet come. But then in chapter 12 and in chapter 13, like four times, Jesus knew his hour had come. Jesus knew the hour of his glorification had come. Jesus knew, he knows in this case, that the hour for him to leave this world and go to the Father has come. And so I believe that is why he is shifting from public ministry to private ministry, is that the hour of his suffering and death has come, and his disciples have to be prepared for that. His disciples have to know his love in this verse. His disciples have to know that his sustaining love is going to carry them through the horror that they're going to face. And they're not going to get it all. Right? He even says that in a couple of chapters, like, there's more I would love to talk to you about, but you can't hold on to that right now. You can't take that right now. And so, look, the Holy Spirit's going to come. He's going to take care of all of this. But for now, I just want to give you the foundation to walk through the heart of it. Like, he knew the hour had come, and so the foot washing and everything that's going to happen in these next five chapters is all about preparing them for the hour that he knows is coming. And so he knew that the, uh, the Passover would come. He knew the hour had come. For him to depart from the world back to the Father. And look at this. Having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. 
Now, the love to the end means he loved them to the uttermost. He loved them as much as he could possibly love them or, I mean, perfectly, or it means that he loved them to the end of his life without failure. And so I think both are true, right? But what is the what what is happening here? Why does he go from the hour to come to depart and then love? Why does he tie those two together? Because key to them persevering through the suffering and the death of the cross, key to you persevering to the end is to know the love of Jesus that has been set on you and can't be taken away. To know the perfect love to the uttermost love that Jesus has set on you that, that uh, Ephesians tells us is beyond human, co- or Colossians tells us it's beyond our ability to comprehend. Having loved his own who are in the world, like foundational to your perseverance is knowing the love of Jesus for you. And then it says he, he loved his own who are in the world, and that is going to be the key uh, distinction between here and in chapter 17, the word for world is going to be used 40 times. And so there are, there is a world that he loves, but he loves the world generally. In fact, throughout here, the world is going to be hostile. The world is going to be opposition. The world isn't going to see him. The world isn't going to know him. The world is going to hate him. Section one, and then the distinction of that. But there is his own special people and he loves his special people in a covenant way, not a general way. He loves his own people in a way that will sustain them. He loves his own people in a way that will preserve them through the end. He loves his own people in a way that will provide them and sustain for them while the world is in absolute opposition to him. And so let's just a couple of things about the world in these next chapters and his people in this next chapter. The world can't receive his spirit. He's going to tell us the world cannot see Jesus where he's going, but you'll see him. The world cannot give a lasting peace. The world has Satan as a ruler of it. The world is going to hate you. The world is going to take you into courts. Your father and mother are even going to take you into courts. And they're going to think that they're serving God by turning you over to the court system to be punished. That's the world. The world is going to give you tribulation. The world is going to be judged by the Holy Spirit and convicted of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. That's the world. The world is going to rejoice at Jesus' death, but take heart. Because Jesus has overcome the world. But what about his own? How does he love his own? How does he sustain his own? His own, he is going to give peace, not as the world gives it in the middle of tribulation. But he's going to give a peace that lasts and sustains through it. He's going to love his own to the uttermost. He is going to send a helper, the Holy Spirit, to his people, who's going to lead them into all truth and is going to point to them the glory of Jesus. And so he's not going to leave them as orphans. He's going to come to them through the Holy Spirit. And so here it is. We have a world that is hostile, a world that is in opposition, a world that hates. And then a love for Jesus that sustains in a world of hate, a love for Jesus that sustains peace in the midst of tribulation, a love of Jesus that will carry his own by sending his Holy Spirit through everything that they're going to face. And he's going to even pray in there. God, I don't pray that you would take them out of the world. I pray that you would keep them. And that's the exact same thing that he would say to you in this moment and say to me in this moment. There is a hostile world that lives in opposition to God that hates Jesus, even when it pretends not to sometimes. There's a hostile world that is in opposition to the work of God of reclaiming people for himself into his family. And there is the essential need for the covenant love of Jesus set on your life to keep you, to sustain you, to provide for you, to live in a world like this. Because you're running home, right? So Jesus, keep me until I'm home. So I thought that song was so perfect for this. Um, okay, so 
He loved his own who were in the world and he loved them to the end. And then during the supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. And so Satan put it into Judas's heart. Does that mean like Judas is just a, a, a helpless victim? Does that mean Judas just got, you know, demon possessed and he's not? Really, no, that doesn't mean that at all. Uh, I was reading an author. He said, uh, unconfessed sin gives Satan power in your life. Judas has been stealing from the disciples money bag, which we learned in a couple of chapters ago for years. It's called unconfessed sin. Judas has taken 30 pieces of silver to, to, to betray Jesus on this very night. That's unconfessed sin. And his unconfessed sin opens his life up to the influence of Satan and to the power of Satan to walk out the purposes of Satan. And since he does not belong to Jesus, he is actually a child of Satan anyways, right? You're John chapter 7. You're of your father, the devil. And so Satan... It didn't have to possess him. Satan just joined in partnership with him and influence over him because his heart and life had already been given over to him to then go out and to betray Jesus in this moment. Unconfessed sin in your life will harden your heart to the voice of God. Unconfessed sin in your life will enslave you to itself as you try to hide it and as you try to keep other people from it. And as you're like, nobody knows about this. You will enslave yourself to that sin that is hidden in the darkness. And you'll open yourself up to the influence of more, more of the influence of Satan in your life and more of the temptations of Satan in your life because you're hiding away what Jesus has died to forgive. And that's what happened to Judas, eventually leading for him to be the one, even though it was foreknown before the foundation of the world, leading for him to be the one who made the decision to betray Jesus But there's another thing I think we need to see about Judas from the other side. Judas is sitting around the table. Which means Judas, the betrayer, that Jesus knows exactly who he is and exactly what he has done and exactly what he's going to do. He's sitting at the table. And in love beyond your possible comprehension, Judas gets his feet washed just like everybody else. Judas receives the most humbling act of service from the exalted King Jesus that anybody else received. And so here's here's something I want to challenge you with or encourage you with, whichever way it goes. If you take on relational ministry, which I think is the only kind of ministry that really is going to matter ultimately. If you take on relational discipleship, if you connect your life to other people in a way that you want to be helped and you want to help them. You're going to meet Judas. Maybe you already have. You're going to have a friend betray you. You're going to have a friend tear your heart out and stomp on it. Somebody you thought you could trust that you couldn't. And that's going to be part of your experience at some point if you give your life away to people. Are you willing to risk? Are you willing to risk again? Are you willing to risk the first time knowing a Judas is coming so that the 11 people, their lives are impacted? So that the 11 grow in the grace and knowledge. So that the 11 are eternally impacted. So that the 11 follow after Jesus. Are you willing to risk it because you're going to run into a Judas? Or are you willing to risk it again because you've already experienced Judas in your life? The guy that sat at your table, the girl that sat at your table, that knew you and loved you and betrayed you. Because that's part of it. That's part of it. I'm going to tell you the 11's worth it. Don't retreat into self-protection because somebody may betray you. Don't retreat into self-protection because you have been betrayed. Jesus didn't. Jesus washed the feet of the guy that was going to lead the authorities to put him on the cross. 
Jesus dipped the bread in an act of ultimate hospitality in the next section and gave it to him. Don't turn off the difference you can make in other people's lives because one of those other people may betray you or has betrayed you. I, got, I run into a lot of pastors that, that struggle with this, and, uh, and I get it. I've done this long enough to, to, to have had a few. And it's so much easier to just keep a distance. Right? You're supposed to stay distant from people. Right? You're supposed to keep people at arm's length. It's dangerous if you get too close to people. Yeah. But it's so much more dangerous to stay away from people. Like it's so much more dangerous for your own growth. And it's so much more dangerous for the impact you want to make in the lives of other people to stay at a distance. Satan had already put it in the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. And then look at this again. Knowing. What Jesus knows in these in this verse is exactly what led to Jesus serving the disciples by washing their feet. And so pay attention to it, like knowing that God had put all things into his hands, knowing that he had come from God, knowing that he's going back to God. He rose and washed their feet. So what did he know? He knew that he had sovereign authority and sovereign power over all the earth. He knew that he had sovereign control and sovereign power and sovereign authority over all of the spiritual realm. He knew that the father had entrusted all judgment and all life and all authority into his hands. And if that's you and me, like we're going to war, let's get these people straight. If it's Jesus entrusted with sovereign rule and authority over the universe, his first act is to stoop down and wash these Bozo's feet. Right. Have you met the disciples? Yeah, because you met yourself, right? So knowing his sovereign authority, he washes their feet, knowing his identity and his origin, that he had come from God, knowing that he was God, the son, knowing who he was in the eternal glory of the father, knowing who he was, a member of the Trinity, knowing who he was, where he had come from, from eternal glory. How does he respond Serves. He washes feet and then knowing where he's going, knowing that he's from eternal glory and headed back to eternal glory. And you think about what a difference that makes. Think about what you can endure and what you can suffer and what you can face and how much shame you can endure. If you know, like, hey, as soon as this is over, eternal glory, as soon as this is over, everything's perfect again, right the way it's supposed to be. Only now the, the joy set before me of a redeemed people coming to me. Now that's also part of this eternal glory. And so since Jesus knows his power and authority and since Jesus knows he's God and since Jesus knows he's headed back to eternal glory. Again, it would be like snap and they just all melt and you're done. No. He takes off his outer garment. He ties a towel around his waist and he gets down on his knees and wipes a betrayer's feet. Gets down on his knees and wipes a guy that won't even acknowledge knowing him that night because some servant girl said, aren't you one of his followers, too? Gets down on his feet and washes or on his knees and washes these people that are like, Mom, go tell them we want power. And that's who he washes their feet. Because he knew exactly who he was. He could forget who he was. He knew exactly who he was. He could empty himself to take on the form of a servant. Isn't that what the Bible tells us about Jesus? He didn't come to be served. 
but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, enduring or going to death, even the death of the cross. So here's the model that's set out for us in here. We have the exalted Christ becoming a despised servant for the good of the people around him. And in that way, it's a little shadow of a very big cross that's looming. The exalted Christ from his eternal glory will become a despised servant who is despised and rejected of men for their ultimate and eternal good. And so this act is an act of shadowing the cross. So he took off his garments. Now he's dressed like a servant. He's dressed like a slave with a towel and just his uh, his basic garments. And he performs the task that is the lowest task of a household servant. Only the lowest servant in the in the pecking order of a household would be tasked to white feet. And in some cases, Jewish people would not allow Jewish servants to wash feet. They would have Gentile servants to wash the feet of others. It is impossible for us to comprehend exactly how upside down this is. Like they would wash Jesus's feet. That makes sense. He's the master. He's the Lord. He's the teacher. They would never wash each other's feet. They're too good for that. But Jesus reverses all of that and he goes around and he washes their feet and every one of them is uncomfortable. This is breaking social norms. This is breaking and tearing apart the hierarchy of society. And it's completely undoing everything they knew. Everybody's uncomfortable. Everybody's uneasy. But you get to Peter and, you know, Peter can't keep his mouth shut. All the other keep their mouth shut. But when he gets to Peter, he's like, Lord, do you wash my feet? Without saying a word, he is crushing the pride of the disciples. He hasn't spoken up until this point at all or much at all. There's like none of the red letters. You don't see those. Like Jesus hasn't said any words, but he is dismantling and exposing the pride of their hearts. I won't be served. I won't have you wash my feet. It's not proper. It's not appropriate. Lord, do you wash my feet? And there's this indignance. Do you wash my feet? There's an embarrassment to this. I know that I'm unworthy for you to do this. And that's Peter's response. That's Peter's response to this. And Jesus tells him, you'll understand it. You'll understand it later. So here's the deal. Pride says I'm right. Pride says my rights matter. Pride says my way. Humility says no God's rights. Humility says no God matters more. Humility says him being on display matters more than people seeing me and and taking note of me. Pride says, I want you to see me. Pride says, make sure you pay attention to me. Pride says, make sure you, you, you make sure you appreciate me. Pride says, look. Humility says, look, but not at me. Humility says, look at him. Right. And the, the only way you will get to a place where you can empty yourself to serve others and not matter as much. Is when you're consumed with God and you know who you are and you know who he is and you know what he's done. It'll free you to serve in a way that forgets self. The second step here. Ongoing cleansing is required for those who are made clean by Jesus. So the imagery moves from the cross where this despised servant, uh, this exalted Christ, despised servant, good of others. It moves from that to the idea of cleansing. And he uses the imagery of a bath. Right. And so Peter's like, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus is like, if I don't, you don't belong to me. You're not mine. And so Peter's like, you know, this is Peter. I love him. 
He's like, I see so much myself. And so it's like, God, then just do it all. Like, I want to be all yours, Jesus. Head, foot, hands, everything. Take me, Jesus. Wash me. Let's do this thing. And Jesus is like, no, you, it's okay. Those who have bathed, those who are already clean, like you're clean. And it just requires the ongoing maintenance of washing your feet, right? You're already clean. And so here's what, here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is like, okay, you've been bathed. You've been washed in my blood. That declares you righteous, that forgives all of your sins, past, present, and future. It's not based on your work. It's based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. You're declared righteous 100% based on the cross of Jesus, 0% on you. You're clean. You're bathed. But you're also tromping around in a dusty world that's cursed by sin. And as you walk in a dusty world cursed by sin with a heart that is flesh and sin, still has a sin nature within it, that sin clings to you. That sin becomes part of you. That sin is, becomes yours. And so you've had the bath of declared righteous forever establishing a relationship to God done. But then as you travel through this world, sin happens. Sin comes out of your life. Your flesh is tempted and, and becomes sinful. And the, or your flesh is, is sinful and at war with the spirit in your life. And you sin. And it does not touch the love God has for you. It does not touch the relationship you have with God. It cannot harm, but it will absolutely affect the experience of relationship that you have with God. So your sin can never change your status with God, your standing with God, increase or decrease the love of God. It's perfect because of Jesus, but it will absolutely have consequences in your life. And the consequences will show up in your experience of relationship with the Father. Unconfessed sin, sin that is unfought, sin that is undealt with, requires the cleansing, right? As Jesus, First uh, John tells us, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will wash your feet. Ongoing cleansing, ongoing forgiveness with confession. You're bathed, your status can't change, but you need your feet washed. Because as you sin, you need that sin cleansed so that the experience of relationship to the Father is not taken away. And then there's some more imagery of, of Judas that, that shows up. Uh, he knows Judas is going to betray him. He knows who it is. But the point that he's trying to make here is that this washing represents a cleansing. I've washed you by my blood forever. And I will wash you in an ongoing way so that you can live in communion and fellowship with me in an ongoing way. And so ongoing cleansing is required for those who have been made clean by Jesus. Ongoing cleansing is required for those who are made clean by Jesus in the last part that we'll deal with today. Following the example of Jesus' humility must be both an attitude and an action. It must be an attitude and an an action. We have become so good as American Christians at knowing stuff and doing very little while still feeling pretty good about it. We know so much stuff. We do so little of what we know. But we still feel really good about it. That's called pride, by the way. You know, I I can define love for you. I can quote you verses on love. I can go a systematic theology of love from beginning to end of God's love and, and our love. But do I joyfully sacrifice for my wife? Do I joyfully sacrifice for my kids? Do I joyfully sacrifice for you? Do I joyfully sacrifice for the lost? Do I give my life in service to other people? I know about love, God, so don't worry about it. I can quote the verse. Do you do love? That's the question that closes out. And Jesus comes and he's had the phase one where it's like this mimics the cross. Exalted Christ, 
humbled servant, good of others. He's done it now where it's like, this is an, an example of cleansing. I am cleansing you. I've cleansed you of your sin and I will continue to cleanse you of your sin. And the last phase is it is an example that is placed on you to crush the pride of your heart and lead you to serve others in these kind of radical ways. And so Jesus talks about it as an example. Do you understand what I've done? You call me teacher and you call me Lord and you're right. Everything we sang about this morning is the majesty of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, the greatness of Jesus, the worth of Jesus. It's all right. Jesus is teacher. Jesus is master. Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord. All of it's true. And if God in human flesh, who deserves every ounce of energy and every breath of praise that you could ever possibly utter, would stoop himself down, take on the lowest servant possible to wash these betrayers and these deniers and these bumbling guys feet. What do you think it means for you? What do you think it means for me? There's an oughtness to your humility. When you're faced with the humility of Jesus, there's an oughtness to your sacrificial, even demeaning at times service to other people. Because you've seen the model of Jesus doing it. Right. If I've washed your feet as a teacher and as a Lord, you also ought to wash one another's feet. It's an example that I've given. He doesn't mean this is like a baptism and a Lord's Supper thing. Like it's a new ritual. Everybody wash each other's feet and that'll make you, you know, that'll be it. No, I don't think so. At least it's the only time it's mentioned. The church fathers didn't do it. And really, it's not functional anymore. Like we have socks and we have shoes and we have paved roads and we have bath running water. So like the point isn't do you wash each other's feet as a ritual? The point is, are you willing to be last? Are you willing to be the servant of all? Are you willing to be the one that wants power by giving them his life for the people around them? That wants power by being the servant of the people around you? Or do you want to exert your rights and you want to exert your power and you want to exert your image? I think that's what he's pressing at. Like we've already had arguments three or four times among the disciples about greatness. And Jesus is like, let me show it to you. Here's what greatness. Here's what God in human flesh greatness looks like. If that's what it looks like for me, you certainly aren't greater than me. You go and do the same. You go and you do the same. And so the disciples fighting about their greatness and fighting about their status seems pretty petty. Right. When you get to this place. Now, here's the kicker. And here's the here's what I think is the key verse of this uh, closing part of it. The disciples easily could be like, I was at the foot washing. I know all about foot washing. I know how it's done. I know what kind of water gets used. I know we got to get the right kind of towel material. I know about foot washing. I heard Jesus talk about it himself. They know. What good is that? You like, oh, man, that sermon stepped on my toes. And man, what a beautiful story. And that's so great that Jesus washed their feet. That's awesome. Let's go have lunch. We know. There is not blessing attached to knowing about Jesus. There is not blessing attached to knowing facts about Jesus. There's not blessing that's attached to knowing what you should do. What's blessing attached to? If you know these things, what is blessing attached to? If you do them. The Christian life is not how much you know, it's how much you do with what you know. 
Maturity isn't how many facts have you stored up through countless Bible studies. It's how many, how much difference has it made in your life where you go live out those Bible studies and live out the power and the grace of Jesus and live out the mission of Jesus and live out all that's been taught to you. There's no blessing attached to you knowing more. In fact, there's sometimes curse attached to it, right? Those who have, it will be taken away from them. What are you doing with what you know? And more importantly, what are you doing when Jesus looks you in the eyes and says there is pride that is eating up your heart? Oh, yeah. Amen. Or. I am humbled and I humble myself under the mighty hand of God that he can exalt me in due time. Or I realize that God opposes the proud, which means Jesus and I are lined up in war against each other and it crushes me. But he gives grace to the humble and so God humble me. Like, is that how I respond to it? It is an attitude. It is a heart posture and it is an action. And if it stops short of either one of those, then we are eaten up with pride. And so what do I do when Jesus stares at me and says, will you go wash unworthy people's feet? But they don't deserve it, God. Did you see how they treated me? They didn't recognize how great I was. I did see that. Just read the story again. And then read the story again. And then read the story again. And so he tells again, Judas, I'm telling you this is about to happen. And why is he telling him? This is what's important. Why is he telling them about Judas again? So that when it happens, you may believe that I'm he. I'm preparing you for my betrayal. I'm preparing you for my suffering. I'm preparing you for my death. And you're going to have enough pieces of information in advance of it so that it won't crush your faith when these things happen. You can still believe that I'm the one. You can still believe that I'm the one. So let's look at a few practical things. In your bulletin on the back, there's some questions you can ask yourself about humility. But application one for your life is humility. How do you respond when you're critiqued by other people? Your blood starts to rise up and you want to defend yourself so badly. Or. man, there's some things God wants me to see in my life, and even if it was painful, I need to go look at those. How do you respond when sin in your life is corrected? You got a good excuse on hand? Push people away. How do you respond? What do you do with your rights? We live in a culture that elevates people who are the biggest victims. And there's a rightness to it in the sense of there is so much injustice in the world. There is so much evil and there's so much things that are not the way they're supposed to be. But as Christians, what do I do with that? What do I do with the rights that I can rightfully assert? What do you do when you disagree with your leaders and disagree with your boss and disagree with your professor? How do you handle disagreement with the people in authority over you? Are you a complainer? Because you know better than everybody else anyways, right? These are tests of pride in your life. Do you do things and say things to try to be heard and seen by other people so that you become the center of attention? Do you do things that are attention seeking? That's called pride. It's called pride. And there's some other questions on the back. And what I would challenge you is to let Jesus take this story and press it on you. 
because you belong to this Jesus. Press on you and pull that pride out of your life because you will always live in opposition to God when you have pride. But you will be infused with the richness of God's grace if you're humble. Second, confession. The saddest thing to me as a Christian and for you as Christians is this. We'll do everything to avoid confession. We'll hide, we'll excuse, we'll minimize, we'll rationalize. We'll get mad at the people that say it. But you know what the gospel says? Like if you confess it, I'll just cleanse it and take care of it anyways. So wouldn't you rather be clean than right? Wouldn't you rather be clean by Jesus than keep this image up and hold on to it? Like you don't have to hide it because it can be cleansed. Confess. And then service. Jesus grabbed a towel to wipe the dirty, sweaty feet of the people around him. What's stopping you? What's stopping you from serving the people around you? Tell me why you can't. Tell me why you shouldn't. Tell me how hard it is. Tell me how much it costs. Tell me how people have hurt you. And then let me tell you about Jesus. The one that's going to be portrayed by one of these guys and denied by one of these guys and had countless problems with the others. Tell me why you can't. Because that's the Jesus that took up the towel to wash your feet and continue to wash your feet when you sin against him and you run from him to other lovers and other desires. And he's the one that will always be there with a towel in hand, ready to scrub your feet clean every time you confess. Every time you turn. And he will cleanse you of all your unrighteousness. Serve and share with two. So pride killing humility is on display here. Let it expose your pride. You will find a better life in humility than you'll ever find. Than you'll ever find with your way. Let's pray. So, Father, in Jesus' name, we bow. In Jesus' name, we ask for the pride of our hearts that gets so hidden, that looks like an American virtue, that can even be faked as humility. And God, we're just such fake sometimes. And so we're asking you to uncover the layers of pride that reside within our heart, and they're there. And we're asking you for the grace of humility and the grace of you humbling us. God, I pray we would be bowled over and brought low when we see our exalted, worshipped, adored Savior stoop. And wash. God, would you do that in us? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.